You see, people collect all kinds of things. New, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Hello and welcome to the Mothball Prophecies. I'm Samantha Mashburn. And I'm Spellcheck. Spellcheck is filling in today for Jill because she is on a well-deserved vacation. Very much needed. And today we have the incredible honor of sitting down with an award-winning jeweler, artist, and taxidermist joining us from Victoria, Australia. Julia DeVille is with us today. Welcome, Julia. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Oh, man. Please. The pleasure is all ours. I am very excited not only to talk about your work as an artist, but your journey to getting to that point. So thank you for sitting down with us today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm really trying not to just freak out, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super excited about this. <laughs> it is. And I was excited that, you know, I, of course, love having Jill with me, but Spellcheck understands and gets the, not that Jill doesn't, but she understands and gets the side of taxidermy and the little more kind of, um, not necessarily strange, but out of normal collector's capacity of wrapping their heads the around. The part yeah. of it, really. Yeah, I cool. really so, I love that. <laughs> we're very excited to nerd out with that with you. And it's always interesting when we book an interview with somebody that is so far ahead in the time zone of going, okay, when does this land for you and when does this land yeah. for us? So it actually worked perfectly that we moved it back a week because Jill and I were traveling last week and we would have been getting home and then sitting down. So this is great. Yeah, right. And you guys are heading into summer now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Spring now. Oh, so yeah, I had, it's lovely. I hadn't uh, even thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> and is this is this your first springtime in your new house in Australia? Yeah. So I, I started renovating a year ago, but I didn't move in until like before Christmas. So uh, yeah, it's my first spring living here. I'm excited to see what like flora and fauna comes up for you in this new place oh it's amazing it's like it's bursting with camellias and um rhododendrons and azaleas and oh. yeah it's just like it's gorgeous oh my gosh it's, it's a very where I live is a very beautiful part of Victoria it's up in the Dandenong Ranges so oh, wow yeah there's a lot of European gardens here and it rains a lot so everything's quite fertile and lush oh. it's definitely not your typical Australian setting and you're originally from New Zealand? Yeah, so yeah, from Wellington. What's the what's the weather difference like? I don't really know the climates of either of those places besides Melbourne's, hot. Yeah, so Melbourne's, it's fairly similar to New Zealand. It just gets hotter, yeah, it's a bit hotter in summer. So, you know, New Zealand, you're kind of, in Wellington, you're lucky if it pushes 27 degrees mm. oh, okay. Celsius in the summer. And then, yeah, Australia's, you know, we'll get up into the 40s. Oh, so. Wow. Wow. Melbourne, I mean, yeah. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. That, that could, yeah. yeah. We get quite warm here too, similar to that. It's a high desert region that we live mm -hmm. in here too, similar to Melbourne. Yeah. When, yeah. And so I want to talk a little bit about your childhood. I was doing some research today and you began your collecting as a child, right? Yeah. What were yeah. some of the first things that you were finding and collecting? Uh, so my dad 
was um, in property and so he was doing a lot of demolition work and he would take me to construction sites and, you know, we'd always find all sorts of strange things in buildings that were being demolished um, and he would take me antiquing and junk shops and stuff like that. But we actually would, when we were renovating our house when I was growing up, um, and we were digging into the bank. We found a lot of like really interesting antique bottles and even like, I don't know if you've seen them before, but tooth- toothpaste containers used to be these beautiful porcelain yeah. square kind of boxes that had like gold leaf writing and they were so ornate. So we found one of those and yeah, I guess I was kind of just around that sort of energy with my dad. So yeah, yeah it started very young. Did your did your parents have particular items that they always were adding to their collections? Um, I'm trying to think. Like my dad, more so as he got older. Like he he was often, you know, his house has bits off historical buildings and that sort of thing. So he's got, you know, he has a lot of very eclectic, interesting, and it's a he's a mixture of kind of modern and antique. And I guess mama's as well. Like, yeah, she's got a lot of very modern stuff, but then some beautiful antiques as well. Yeah. That's how I grew up too, was kind of that breadth of collecting. If it was just like, you just brought interesting pieces home. It wasn't necessarily because of the items of claim. Yeah. 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 I love the idea that you got to go through old buildings. That's something I love doing if I ever get the chance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a, ama- well, you know, I just, it seemed normal because it was just, <laughs> what we did but yeah. Yeah, I remember finding like an old um Judy doll from a Judy and Punch show and yeah all sorts of things dad actually pulled got a creature from the Black Lagoon um, pinball machine out of what? one of his buildings once which I used to we well, had it at home and then when I moved to Australia and they moved house they just chucked it out and I was oh, like do you realize how much those things are worth oh no oh no Probably worth about 30 grand or something. Did yeah. you find any like cool stuff inside walls too? Um, not that I can remember. I did in my last house, um, found some like old photos and stuff on the floor, but yeah. nothing, nothing really exciting. <laughs> we had that same thing growing up where I don't know if they have them in Australia, but we have like dump areas where people take their household garbage. Yeah. And so we had one where I grew up was really rural. And um, so you drove literally out into the middle of nowhere. And at the time you could like get out and go through everything. So it was like a family dump trip and we'd all bail out of the car. (laughs) And my mom would be like, no stuffed animals, no this, no that. And so I literally felt like a treasure hunter looking through stuff. It's like dumpster diving for um, American hillbillies. Yeah. Yeah. Similar. Yeah. We we went, we, my dad used to take us to the, the, dumped as well but we called it the rat pack and it wasn't actually to go looking for things we'd go at night time and put the lights on and it was just crawling with rats <laughs> and that was like a, a fun out <laughs> we, love that. we where kids. where i live we do not have rats but we have lots and lots of mice and rattlesnakes so i'm assuming oh wow if you, yeah because the the transfer station that's what they call it here is a transfer station and it was yeah. called the rattlesnake transfer station because <laughs> of that which sounds terrifying, terrifying. now <laughs> But now you can't really do that. And just the now I just get the thrill of like maybe driving by a thrift store and seeing something left by the garbage. Or yeah. or people yeah. here will leave stuff out on the sidewalk and put a little sign mm-hmm. that says free. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we actually have hard rubbish here. So like once or twice a year, everyone leaves all of their stuff out 
on the road. And, really? Yeah, and so it's like the streets are just full of – and, you know, I've got friends who have found beautiful pieces of antique furniture wow. and stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of, lot of crap, but it's – yeah. Oh, that's incredible. That sounds so awesome. Because <laughs> Well, and your dad was naturally curious from doing just uh, – he was a scuba diver by trade. Did he do that by trade or did he do that for fun? No, that, no, that was just his hobby. Yeah. Still is. Yeah. Uh, and I would love nothing more than if my dad brought me home things from anywhere that was like dead or something like that. Because <laughs> what a wonderful thing to be introduced to animals that way and sea life. Yeah, no, I just remember playing with like an octopus that he brought home <laughs> once. It all seems kind of cruel now, but you know, when I was little, I didn't really get any of that that it was quite awful for the octopus to be out of the water <laughs> but yeah it was still alive and you know like having its tentacles like wrapping up my arm and wow. stuff yeah very beautiful it's an interesting feeling I we went to Mexico when I was in high school and we were looking around snorkeling in the coral and there was an octopus hiding in a hole and I was like I gotta look at that and I put my hand down and it put its tentacles up my arm and then I pulled it mm. off and for three weeks I had circles on the yeah. back of my hand, because where we are not by an ocean by any means, we're in we Idaho. Are so that when the first experience I had with the ocean was incredible because it's just teeming with. Yeah. So, yeah. and I was a curious child like you were, and I was struck by your first incidents with like taxidermy or a preserved animal with your grandmother's fur stoles. Yeah. So um, I don't know if they got. Yeah, we just we had a, a bunch of her fox dolls. So, you know, it was the ones where the mouth opens up and like bites onto the tail and it had the legs and everything on it. And I was fascinated by them. Like I used to kind of dress up in them and I thought that because they looked real, you know, they didn't look real, but they had like this this kind of feeling of being alive. And I mm. always felt like they would come to life when I wasn't looking and oh, right. um yeah, it was, I guess it was, you know, I was probably four or five when I was playing with those. So it was a very early intro. Yeah, I think, you know, where we live, it's primarily and which I wanted to talk to you a little bit about too. And we'll get into it a little bit later with your taxidermy. Where we live, I have a problem with people's taxidermy that is traditionally for the show of having the taxidermy piece. Like um, we live in a heavily populated hunter area. So the taxidermy yeah. you see is generally large, like elk, deer, moose, bear. Mm. And then you have some people, of course, that travel and do big game hunting. And that's where I kind of draw the line on taxidermy itself is like, yeah. And I, yeah, I know you align with that too. And like I said, we'll get into that. But that was something we were always introduced to. And then when I started to see, as I got older, and like the first time I saw your work, I was like, oh, there is a, there's a side to taxidermy that isn't terrible mm. as it is here at where we live. Because where I live, when I walk in and see somebody's big game, it's not uh, fascinating to me. Yeah, in it's, any. it's really just the the hyper-masculine, I shot this big giant thing and I didn't use any of the rest of it. I just shot it so I could put it on my wall. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, what taxidermy no. here is. Yeah, that's I find that very upsetting. I've actually, I actually have done a few pieces referencing that. So I've done a piece called... 
uh, gun club, which is like a little mouse on a shield. It was a brooch, like a trophy mounted mouse. And I've also done a kitten trophy rug. So like, you know, like you would have a bear rug, but it's Mm -hmm. made from a kitten. And it's kind of a comment on like, it's meant to be that hunting is meant to be this like big masculine thing. It's like, look what I look what I killed it's like you shot it with a gun from a distance like it's not like you wrestled it with your bare hands yes yeah um, yeah it's kind of like no more powerful than shooting a kitten and making a rug out Mm -hmm. of that and I yeah I love that about uh your art specifically is that the evoking of that type of uh, conversation around the pieces of taxidermy and why somebody has it displayed or why they've put it. And I like that you actively challenge those perceptions of taxidermy. But I wanted to talk about something that made me giggle because it's similar to, so we have a shared love for the Rocky Horror Picture Show. (laughs) Yes. Um, I was definitely a strange kid with strange things. And I had a lot of the same feelings you had the first time you saw it. And we were close to the same age of witnessing that spectacle. I really think that's super like telling <laughs> about your personality. <laughs> yeah. And maybe about the parents as well. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I still don't know why my mom let me watch that at that age. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Me and my sister were like dancing around the house singing. I'm just a sweet transvestite. <laughs> yes. And yeah. And I remember the same thing. My mom was a single parent. So I think it was just kind of like, if you're in front of the TV, it's going to be better for everybody for a little bit. But I, that was like my first instance of like seeing drag, which I love drag and seeing just, I mean, and I'm a musical person too. I love musicals. So it was like, oh, this is a thing too. And it's not just all Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, which all my friends talk about. (laughs) What, uh, what in you like shifted when you started to see that iconography growing up? Uh, I don't know. There was just something that resonated with me as like, I loved the costumes and like Frankie, the, yeah, the idea of things being so unconventional and I guess I've always been different and yeah, it just, it was kind of like, these are my people or Mm -hmm. something, you know, like, Yeah. yeah, I love magenta and I just love everything about it. I love, the fact that it's made by a New Zealander, mm-hmm. you know, like I it's, didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Yeah, no, uh, Richard O'Brien's a Kiwi, the guy who plays Riff Raff, he wrote it. And um, I didn't know that at the time. But yeah, it was weird. It was on a more visceral level, though. Like, I can't, I'm having trouble to even find mm-hmm. the words for it because it just like struck a chord somewhere yeah. in me. I've seen that film so many times and I've performed it. Like, I, I used to be a, um, roller skater when I was a kid and into you know competition skating and I did my routine to the time warp somehow I managed to convince my jazz ballet teacher to let (laughs) us do our end of year show to the time warp and I went to a private girls school and um in our second to last year part of house music you would do um there would be a small group performance at like maybe up to 10 of the 16 year olds would do like choreograph and perform mm-hmm. a song and somehow I got involved in that and pushed it towards the Rocky Horror Show and this was you know like a very religious I was just um, about to ask school and we were wearing like corsets knickers fishnets 
with our faces painted and our hair teased up and none of us could sing and we were all just kind of trotting around the stage <laughs> screaming and we didn't all we had accompanying us was, was a piano <laughs> and we got a standing ovation from the whole school and we came last because the judge was a hymn writer <laughs> oh and no then I think we had to go to the principal's office <laughs> <after>. <laughs> well and I it was to the time warp right so it was a piano version yeah. of the time warp the time warp yeah <clears throat> it was it was very interesting <laughs> i think you need to be sainted yeah for that <laughs> they need to write a hymn about you yes. the hymn writer to this day has a track <laughs> buried somewhere yeah. of those 10 girls wow so when you say private school is that is that term used in the same way in new zealand as in the states where it's a school like you would pay a tuition to go to yeah yeah and i it know was like like in the UK, private is the same as a public school here, and I'm. Ah, uh, yeah, no, no. Private is a paid school, and normally very like stuck up. Mm-hmm. And, oh, okay. Yeah, and you know, like it was an all girls school, and it was very strict and conservative. Um, conservative. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. So, and which didn't suit me at all. My parents ended up pulling me out for my last year of school because I wanted to do four art subjects and two sciences. And the private schools obviously want to get good marks mm-hmm. and it's really hard to get marks in the arts. And I was good at maths and science. So they wanted me to do all of those subjects. Yeah. And, um, you know, in the end I ended up doing, I think, physics, chemistry, painting, design, fashion and textile photography and I think I just barely passed all of my art subject and then I got like A's in physics and chemistry because it's easy to get high marks in those subjects if you understand it Mm -hmm. art is subjective and yeah I don't like it was so kind of formulaic and you had to paint for our bursary like last year portfolio we were painting like 1970s concrete buildings and that's what we had to do we were given that as our brief and I liked doing figurative form so I was putting these kind of white ghosty figures in the front which I don't think went down too well because I wasn't doing what I was meant to be doing but yeah you don't get points for creativity and art at school yeah and you're the second person I've heard of that instance of going to a private school wanting to specialize in something in the school being like no we need to continue getting money for students being sent here. And I just think that's for the parents that send their kids to private school for whatever reason, I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind is, you know, is academia more important to you or is the, the creativity of your child and more important. And so good on your parents for, well, my dad's very eccentric and he used to, like I had, we weren't, we were only allowed one earring in each earlobe and I had a whole bunch of piercings and I had my tongue pierced three times and all of this stuff and dad would just call up the principal and yell at her and say she's our daughter we Mm -hmm. decide whether she's allowed piercings or not like we negotiated this Mm -hmm. and came to a deal and um so I was the only person who was allowed to I had to wear band-aids over my earrings and a plastic tongue pierce like plastic things in my tongue so they couldn't see it um but yeah, he was constantly kind of at them and then yeah, he was more than they were more than happy to pull me out when the school wouldn't allow mm-hmm. me to do the subject. I love that he went to bat for you like yeah. that. That is fantastic. Yeah. I yeah, had no, I was lucky. Yeah, I had a very similar 
I didn't go to private school. I went to a public school, but the area that I'm from is very conservative and Mm -hmm. my family was not in alignment of that theology. And so I also had piercings at a very early age. I had my Monroe pierced at like 15, my belly button at 13. So I, I had a lot of those same things too, of people like quizzing my mother about this, you know, and, and the thing is that people do is they attribute all of these adult stereotypes to body modification and like, sexualizing girls especially that have body modification at that age and it Mm -hmm. was yeah it was the same kind of thing my mom was like just it doesn't matter it's just a piercing it's not yeah it it doesn't do anything it it grows over you can take it out it's not like I was like I do have face tattoos now but it's not like I was tattooing my face back then and they were allowing me to do things that you can't come back from yeah and I don't know if your parents were like my parents my mom was like well either I'm going to take her to do it or it's going to happen regardless yeah yeah. 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 That was, I find that interesting because at the time when I was getting pierced, I was just like, this is great. And it was like another stepping stone. And now I don't have really any of those piercings left at all, except for my ears and I, my nose. No, I've, I've taken all of mine out completely. Yeah. I was just like, yeah, you, get, you get over it. Mm-hmm. Once you've, like, I think that's the thing. It's just getting it out of your system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then just, yeah, moving on from that. Uh, yeah. So I also just got tired of getting them caught on things in my life because that's never yeah. fun either. <laughs> yeah. That's not a good idea. And so you finished school and you did you immediately go to university and start studying art? Is that what yeah, your next I did, step? Yeah, I did a year of fashion in New Zealand and I hated it. Um, it just wasn't what I thought it would be. I'd always wanted to be a fashion designer and I could just see it would be such a long time before I got to make anything I wanted to wear mm-hmm. um so then I moved to Melbourne when I was 18 and um did a year of shoemaking maybe a year and a half of shoemaking again same thing thought I wanted to be a shoe designer and realized it was going to be so long before I could make any shoes that I wanted and mm-hmm. so after a year and a half of that I did a couple of short jewelry courses and like the first day of the first course I just knew that's what I wanted to do and it was the same time I had found my taxidermy mentor. Rudy, so, right? Was his name? Yeah. Rudy? Yeah. That is incredible that that, because I know you were looking for quite some time to find somebody that could teach you taxidermy, right? Yeah. I, f- I first realized taxidermy was something you could do when I must have been 15 or 16. And I bought an eight pointer stag's head from an antique shop. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, you know, that's kind of when I put two and two together. I knew, I knew of taxidermy, but I just never thought about it before then. Mm-hmm. And then I, then I wanted to learn how to do it. So I kind of found some taxidermists and, yeah, it's very male-dominated or was very male-dominated industry back then. And none of them would really take a 16-year-old girl mm-hmm. seriously. And, yeah, it wasn't until I moved to Melbourne and there was this amazing shop called Wunderkammer. It's actually still around, but it's um, a different person owns it now but back then it was owned by these two friends Heather and Igor and Igor. they yeah <laughs> they were amazing both of them were artists and it was this like it looked like an old Victorian science lab and they sold like human skeletons and wow. you know antique medical equipment and some taxidermy they were both vegan and yeah I just you know I spent a lot of time there and um, Heather was friends with Rudy's son, who is an acrobat. And so, yeah, they of kind course. of introduced me. And 
I really offered to teach me and yeah, it was a very kind of beautiful learning experience. It's like the perfect serendipitous, right, lacing of ties. Yeah. Yeah. And Rudy is just is such an amazing man. Like again, he'd worked for museums most of his life and he was into taxidermy for the preservation mm. side of it. And he had his own business and he did do some like game, you know, he had to do a lot of foxes that people would hunt, but it was never what he wanted to do. Like he just loved the creativity and you know he's Dutch and my family half my mum's side of the family is Dutch and yeah, I just resonated with him but, oh really yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah he just like you know I was 18 and he was probably in his 60s and we just got on so well like I felt more comfortable with him than I did with a lot of people my own age yeah. and um yeah it was a it was just such a lovely experience I I just think it's just a beautiful love story of the I'm sure he was just like chuffed to bits to teach somebody especially. yeah I think he was just happy that because you know back then taxidermy was creepy like mm-hmm. I would tell before I found my teacher I would tell people that I wanted to learn taxidermy and I would literally have people like mid-conversation turn around and walk away because it was just so bizarre you know like it's not like now and it's kind of fashionable and every cool bar has a piece of taxidermy mm-hmm. in it it was considered really weird and um so Rudy was just stoked that like you know this young girl was interested in the craft and he was so happy to teach me do you, is is taxidermy kind of readily available for people to see where where you grew up and where you are now because here you get taxidermy in every Walmart and everybody's mm-hmm. house has something I mean, it's all over the place. More so now, but it's like fashionable, you know, like back then, no, back then you just would see it in some dusty old antique shop or something Yeah, that was kind of, you know, and maybe in like, if you went skiing in the lodge or something, mm-hmm. okay, might yeah. be some, but yeah, definitely not in people's houses or anything. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's house here has yeah, something. Everybody. Yeah, wow. Was it was it considered just really too macabre and taboo for people to own taxidermy then? Yeah, I think it was just like people thought it was weird. I think yeah. it was just kind of associated with serial killers and <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. else, but there was, you know, like it was definitely not something. Like, I was the only person I knew in my life that had a piece of taxidermy. Yeah, with when I bought my stag's head, and yeah, I think it's more unusual here for someone to not have right. Taxidermy. But I think wow. I think like Idaho and some northern states are an outlier in that. Yeah, of, yeah. yeah. Let's yeah. specify yeah. Idaho. Yeah. There's a lot of hunting <laughs> yeah. that goes around uh, goes yeah. on here. Yeah. But like nobody in my family growing up had taxidermy. I don't come from a family of hunters. I do. Yeah. So it was it was not something that was in our house growing up. But I have to imagine that your jewelry design and your taxidermy gives you a unique eye for detail when processing an animal. Yeah. Yeah. I think I just naturally have an eye for detail anyway. I think that's why I was so, um, why I just love jewelry straight away. I was, you know, basically percentages of a millimeter are, are important. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's my thing. Like I love, I love that like specificity and attention to detail. Yeah. And what were, so what were some of your early pieces? Like what did Rudy teach you on in 
becoming a taxidermist. And and also be s- super specific. <laughs> I want to know the process. Yeah. Okay. So the, the first time I went to see him, I just went to meet with him and he kind of explained the process to me and showed me some things he'd done. And then he was like, when you find something, uh, bring it out and I'll teach you how to do it. And so a few weeks later, my housemate came home drunk and she'd found a dead starling on the side of the road so I went out I took that out to Rudy I was really nervous because I didn't know if I'd be able to stomach it or not you know Mm. I didn't know what was involved and Mm. I really wanted to do it but I was like I might not be able to cope with this yeah and we got there and he kind of would show me on one side and then I would do the other side and it was so beautiful it was just like this very clean you know it was a fresh bird it had been in the freezer delicate process and you know once you remove the skin so you skin it first and the body is just like a chicken's body you know it's all very familiar and you're not breaking the carcass open and you're not dealing with guts and there's not a lot of blood or anything and it's all very clean and um yeah so he would just do one side and I would do the other side and I think we posed it I still I wonder where it is actually I should find out with that piece is like since I've moved I yeah I forgot I had that um a lot of my early pieces got ravaged by moth so they're gone now but um yeah we just posed it on a branch and it hangs on the wall you know it was very traditional Mm -hmm. um the next piece I did was a parrot that I found and we we actually were planning on eating the parrot as well because he really wanted to show me like the idea of using the whole animal Mm -hmm. but we didn't have time and he said that parrots don't taste that nice (laughs) anyway it was it was more going to be like the ritual of yeah of doing that um but that one was done flying and I had it hanging from the ceiling wow and then the next piece I did was a fox so I called him up and I said I had a fox and he was like don't you bring that disgusting thing anywhere near me oh no Apparently he was like, foxes are the smelliest, most revolting thing. And apparently they have this um, anal gland that has some horrific scent that comes out and you can't, once you get it on you, you can't get it off. Like a skunk? And I guess probably not as bad as a skunk, but I think it's still pretty horrific. Similar? Bad enough that he didn't want me <laughs> to bring like, it out. Absolutely and, and not, then, Julia. And then he <laughs> called back and he was like, oh, look, just bring the head out and we'll do the head. So... <laughs> I was like, okay. So I'm outside with a hacksaw, like sawing this fox's head off in my pajamas and my housemate comes out and was just like, oh God. That that would not have been weird here. Yeah. But that would, that would have been weird to me. I will. I would have walked outside and been like, who's my roommate? Um, I, I did have some issues with my, I had some kittens in the freezer. My housemate had a cat and she didn't get it de sexed and it kept having kittens and some of them would die. And so I had oh. the kittens in the freezer that I was going to taxidermy. And one day I, came, I went to look for it and it was gone. Hmm. And I was like, where, where are the kittens gone? And um, Reuben had found them in an ice cream container and then got really annoyed and buried them in the garden. And I went, I was furious. I was like, A, why are you opening my ice cream container? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's my ice cream anyways, Ruben. Get out. And and then I went around the garden with a pair of chopsticks trying to find <laughs> where it was, but then it turned out he'd thrown them out in the bin. Oh, Ruben. Um, yeah. 
Ruben's still a dear friend now, but it was not it was not his best moment. <laughs> I oddly enough had a similar experience. I had found um, you know, birds fly into windows often and I was at my in-laws house and there was a beautiful bird on the ground and as any logical person does, I went, I'm going to take that home and put it in my freezer. Yeah. Yeah. And one of my friends was over and she was, do you have anything to eat? And I was like, well, I guess you can check. And she was in the freezer and she goes, um, Sam. And I'm like, yeah. She goes, why specifically do you have a bird in a Ziploc bag in your freezer? And I was like, oh, I think I'm going to try and learn how to taxidermy it. And she was just like. Was this your oldest friend that I went to high school No, with? it was Marky. <laughs> the girl I work with now. <laughs> and she knows her. But I, yeah, it was very much like I didn't like you. I hadn't thought anything of it. I was like, well, I'll get to it when I get to it. But. Yeah, as I got older and I ended up getting a dedicated freezer. Yeah. Smart. (laughs) Very smart. I had a biology teacher in high school who was also like a vulture. And there was one room. He had the biggest room in the classroom. And the one room in the back was literally filled with handmade jars of things. And then he had a fridge and freezer specifically for specimens that somebody had brought him or he found. So he would be like, can you go go in the freezer? And on this shelf, there should be a snake. And we're like, he's like, just bring it out to me. He was a quite an eccentric man, and I loved him dearly for that. It was amazing. It was, and that was when I started to be like, "Oh, okay, people do have, just have dead things, and that's okay." And then people are like, yeah. "No, people don't have dead things." I'm like, "Oh, well, fine." Whatever. So my uncle, um, when I was younger, he he was a wildlife biologist and uh, worked with a forest um, service, and he was working on his PhD, and it involved something with rats and smaller animals, and um he had a license to pick up roadkill for his studies. And so uh, he would occasionally send weird animal parts to my dad for me and my brother. Like, Hey, look, here's a Fox skull or here, look at this picture of your uncle with a dead rat or whatever. So it took me a while to figure out that that wasn't yeah, usual. Cause I, yeah. cause there was always something in our house that was used to be alive. Yeah. Right. Well, and I wanted to ask you too, because there's an interesting fact about you that some people might find interesting that you are a taxidermist and also a lifelong vegetarian and then vegan. Yes, but actually not at the moment. Um, so I was, I became vegetarian when I was 12 after an experience on a farm, mm. my uncle's farm. And um, then I was kind of not a very good vegetarian because I didn't like vegetables. <laughs> and, you know, this was like back in the early 90s like yeah there was it wasn't nothing. much my mum had to go to the library and get books about vegetarian cooking and it mm-hmm. was all like tofu and mm. you know that sort of thing which I didn't really like so I would go in and out of anemia and then mm. kind of have doctors talking me into eating meat again and then I became a very strict vegetarian when I moved to Melbourne um and then became vegan and then had some health stuff mm. happen, I think partially as a result of that and also some burnout and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I now, I wouldn't really say I'm anything. Like I eat a little bit of fish, mm-hmm. I eat eggs if they're, you know, ethically sourced mm-hmm. and stuff. And I will sometimes make bone broth. Yeah. So I kind of feel like, you know, it's using byproducts more than mm-hmm. main things. but. Yeah, it was it was easier when I was vegan because when I got death threats and hate mail and stuff, it was kind of like a an easy card to pull. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting because the yeah, there is still a big part of that community that 
it didn't matter if you were vegan or mm-hmm. if the work was like helping animals mm-hmm. it was still you know there would still be a a line that they could find like oh well the animals the animal didn't give you permission and mm-hmm. you know like its soul and all of that stuff yeah. so like, I wouldn't do it if I believed I was doing anything to the animal's soul like it's yeah. and I first I want to say I find it incredibly commendable that you were you know living in that lifestyle for such a long time and recognized for your health, finding a way to still respect the things that you are consuming and be conscious of that. I think more people um, should, where we live, it's rural and there's lots of farming, right? I think more people should be conscious about the things they're consuming and how they are brought to your table. Yeah. Where it comes Uh, from. Yeah, definitely. I think we're so disconnected, you know, Mm -hmm. like, meat comes in a polystyrene tray with glad wrap mm-hmm. over the top. Like you don't, um, you're just not familiar with that side of things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, for me, it was the work was never about trying to convince people to go vegan or vegetarian. It was more getting people to make informed decisions, like to make the decisions they would make if they were presented mm-hmm. with all of the information. And yeah. that was what I found the most powerful part of doing the work. I love that. Yeah. And that was one of the very first things that drew me to your work when I first discovered it was seeing taxidermy in a way that made me think about the animal and its journey and where it got to and then the way you beautifully encrust them. And I love that all of your work has such a sense of innocence and fragility to it while still being taxidermy. And yeah, for me, it's about celebrating the animal. Mm-hmm. So it was always, you know, I didn't want to do things that were shocking or grotesque. Like I wanted to show the beauty and even if it's, you know, things like a pigeon, which people just think of as a flying rat. But when you look at it, it's actually a beautiful bird. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just common. So you don't pay attention. And the same as a mouse and a rat. And mm-hmm. I actually had one woman buy a piece that was a rat curled up on an antique, like a beautiful pink kind of floral antique plate and it had black diamond eyes and I think some gold leaf like a a gold leaf kind of curling around it and she paid I think four and a half thousand dollars for it at the time and she was saying that morning she'd just thrown a rat in the rubbish bin that she'd poisoned and that idea of kind of preciousness it's like you know like how how we value things and mm-hmm. what is what is valuable and what is precious mm-hmm. and um yeah to get people to think about their ideas around those things i find really interesting i like i like that you're taking the focus away from the like the hunter who is being commended for mm-hmm. what they've done and the animals just the afterthought mm-hmm. whereas what you're doing it's all about the animal mm-hmm. And doesn't yeah. really have anything to do with the person involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's for me, it's there's something sacred about animals. Like mm-hmm. I think I've Absolutely. always been, I've always been very drawn to animals from a young age, and felt an affinity to mm-hmm. them. And there is that, you know, like you were saying, that innocence about them. Like they don't judge you, they don't hurt you, in a in you know, in an emotional way, like mm-hmm. they yeah. are quite pure. It's like everything they do is instinctual and for survival. Whereas we've kind mm-hmm. of developed these things that are outside of our nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I wanted, cause I know you're, when you begin the process of creating a piece, it's very free form, correct? Mm. 
do you do you feel like the piece you're working on guides you to its own story and the naming of a piece when you're when you're starting it? Yeah, in a very like kind of flow process. Like normally it does go like sometimes I have an idea and then I work to the idea, but a lot of the time with the taxidermy, I would just have the animal and I would just start posing it the way that it, mm-hmm. it felt like it wanted to be mm-hmm. posed and then I would decorate it after that but then there have been bigger pieces I've done like the giraffe that I did a couple of years ago um was about a 10-year process wow from start to finish mm-hmm. because first I found out it was in the museum of a freezer and then I harassed them for several years to sell it to me and it took them a few years to agree and then it had like then I finally went and posed it, but we had to freeze dry it because it was it had been in the freezer for thirty years, wow. so it was too deteriorated to taxidermy, mm. and so freeze drying kind of dictated that it had to be lying down because it wasn't going to fit standing up in the freeze dryer, and then once I had the posed giraffe, then there was a lot of kind of planning around and designing and Mm -hmm. and stuff like that and then working on it but I think when it's working on something that big you can't really afford to fudge around with it because you will it's expensive yeah (laughs) Yeah. you know it was such an expensive piece to make and I'm using gold and diamonds and things like that so it was very planned out in a sense and then there's been other pieces where it's like I'll be doing a lamb and it's got a bit of a patch of fur missing on the side Mm -hmm. so then I'll kind of shape that patch and fill it with rubies and then it looks like a wound and then Mm -hmm. it gets put on a platter and it's kind of you know there's yeah it works both ways but there's always a feeling of like just there's just a way that the each animal should be posed Mm -hmm. and that's a very intuitive thing that giraffe piece makes me like almost want to weep because it's the innocent you can feel the life and because it was a stillborn giraffe right yeah, yeah, it was still born in a zoo. It just the the emotion that's in that piece, and even I think that the laying down works perfectly for it because yeah, it shows that the only reason it was in that situation was because of man, really. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's what I, like. oh. I presented it in a big kind of glass vitrine, like it's you know, it's very much out of nature mm-hmm. and it's got the reins and the harness mm-hmm. on it. You know, it's like, again, like the way man harnesses animals for its own use. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Was it preserved at all before being put in the freezer? No, it was just, wow. I think it's organs had already been removed. Like they were obviously intending to taxidermy it at some yeah. point, but, you know, 30 years on it just... Well, <laughs> and I think they had actually had the freezers break down once or twice and had to hire a, you know, a mobile freezer and almost lost it. And that's the point that they decided to sell it wow. to me because I think they just realized it's like they may as well get some money for it. Otherwise, it will yeah. probably end up going. Uh, my other favorite piece that I always, it's the first piece I talk about whenever somebody asks, like when I mention your name, which is often. And um, I mentioned there's a piece that always struck me as and I don't know how you intended it. I don't know that I've ever done any research on your your beings behind it. It's the lamb that's on top of a silver platter with the rubies in the neck mm. and the the like holder, the handle on the back of it. Yeah. Yeah, the cloche handle. That piece the I'm, first I'm time I saw it was it's that one right there at the top. That first I went this is such a representation of 
the food industry for this animal and the the industry that this animal exists in is just literally to be put on this platter and presented. But without any identification with it being an animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is beautiful. Yeah. I I haven't seen this before. I'm sorry. This is, is, that, it the, is. is that the white lamb? Yeah, the it, white lamb. Yeah. That one. Yeah, that's the one I pointed out because that was my oh she. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. yeah that was um, well, yeah. The first time I what's its name? Sorry, what was the name? Silence. Wow, it's just your it's your work is incredibly evocative in that in when I view it at least when I look at it I just am always kind of stunned into the silence at not only the beauty but the the story that your pieces are telling. Your your pieces are so connected and so um, honoring of the spirit of the animal. Mm-hmm. And for me, that brings a lot of emotion mm-hmm. up, like looking at your pieces. It's obvious that you're not, that you're putting part of yourself, but you're also, I'm, I'm even having trouble. Mm-hmm. This is just so beautiful. And for, it, it, it's like touching a part of the mm-hmm. inside of me. Mm-hmm. If that's not Thank too you. weird to say, yeah. no, that's that's lovely. That means a lot. Thank you. The way yeah. that you treat them is it just is obviously very gentle and kind, and mm-hmm. hugely meaningful. Yeah, there's like I always call them my animals. Like there's a connection to them, and there's a sense of reverence. And yes, it's interesting because a lot of times I will get people say to me, "Oh, when I heard about your work, I thought it sounded." revolting Mm. and terrifying and sometimes even when they see photos because you know the size is hard to tell but Mm -hmm. I'd have people come up to me exhibitions and just say like I cried when I saw this like I thought I would be really confronted Mm -hmm. and scared but it's just so beautiful and there's so like it would just emote so much Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I had this exhibition at the National Gallery of Victoria in 2013 and it was called degustation it was uh basically a dining room Mm -hmm. so you know there were big victorian tables and that that platters with animals and i had artworks from the ngv's collection on the walls and it was like black flopped velvet wallpaper and black velvet curtains to enter into the room so it was very theatrical and the you know there were people sitting the whole time like guards and stuff and facilitators wow. in there and they just said it was like nothing they'd ever experienced it was like a library like people wouldn't talk in there mm. and yeah like if they did they were whispering and there was like just this energy in the room and yeah I just I, I didn't really understand the power of it until mm. that exhibition um and that's when I started doing more immersive work because I just realized how you could actually mm-hmm. transport someone to this very emotive state by kind of surrounding them in that environment yeah it, it was that was an incredible exhibition I remember seeing the photos of it and just being like because I'd only ever seen bits and pieces of your work before but do you just, just know like, everything about everybody it's a problem I really have I'm <laughs> um, just hyper interested in things Coll- collecting information yeah, yeah like a magpie but at that piece, and then I re- that's when I started to kind of focus and follow your work a little more closely. And the next piece that had that same feeling to me was when you created the nursery. Ah, uh, yeah. And yeah. I, that's one of the things I talk about with people too, is I just, I talk about the mobile you created. I talk about the rocking horse. And was the alpaca in that? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that rocking alpaca. It's just, I mean, 
incredible. Yeah, there is actually, there is an exhibition that I did in 2018, which had the giraffe in it, but it, it kind of brought it all together. So there was a dining room, there was the nursery or the bedroom, there was a room with the giraffe. And then I also, that's when I started going into um, learning how to make holograms. So there was mm. a room of holograms as well of the works. Um, and that I actually have, I 3D scanned the exhibition so you can do a virtual walkthrough. So I can give you a link to oh my God. the show I notes literally, if you want. Please, that sounds, <laughs> wow. I feel giddy. What a great, and this was also the place that you had, it was a multi-sense uh, exhibit, right? There were smells and. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. So there was, there was um, music, a soundtrack for each room, which was like the, the bedroom had, you know, those jewelry box kind of clinky mm-hmm. tunes. It was that, but it was a Nirvana song. And then the dining room, I'm trying to remember what the song was, but that was like a kind of piano version of maybe that was the Nirvana song. There was like Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, like so all of kind of my favorite rock bands, mm-hmm. but done in different, like, you know, you kind of, so people would be like, this sounds really familiar. And then they'd realize it was like, smells like teen spirit, but right. music, music box. Haunting, a little more haunting. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, then we had scents as well. Like I really wanted, that was a harder thing to get right. Um, and it didn't really work in the way I wanted it to, but mm. I think for something like that, you'd need to really work with someone. And it was, it was getting to this point where I was, you know, it was already the biggest work I did biggest show I'd ever done Mm -hmm. I was making holograms uh, you know like it was just getting it was getting 3d scanned I was doing a virtual reality version like it just got so kind of crazy that yeah the scent thing I think we ended up just turning them off after a while I can't even remember what scents I went with I think it was like sage in the dining room I wanted to do in the hologram room I wanted an ozone generator because that's that really kind of technology smell yeah. but apparently ozone's quite dangerous to yeah. breathe in so <laughs> the, the gallery was like we're not going to do that um and you're like well yeah. just give some gas masks out and let them yeah. experience it <laughs> that idea of having a full sensory like smells and sounds and and looking all of it that just sounds so incredible mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was definitely like, I, you know, it's kind of sounds weird to say because it was my own exhibition, but I loved going there. Like I loved, I don't uh, think that's I weird at watching, all. Watching people's response. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, that is. Uh, well, and I, I like that. I mean, of course it's going to happen in the progression of your artistry, right? Where things get a little bit bigger and grander and you're able to put a little bit more symbolism more and more and yeah. more into the things. And I wish we would have more time to talk about it, but I do want to get to your jewelry making too, because I also love that. And I love <laughs> that you carry that same divinity is how I would put it for your jewelry making, because you specifically make like, cause you are very fond of memento more like I am. And these are like mm-hmm. your version of sentiment jewelry. Wouldn't you say making wedding yeah. and engagement rings? Yeah. Yeah, so like I do the full gamut of jewellery, but what I really am into now is the wedding and engagement rings. Like that's just the thing that if I could only do one thing for the rest of my life, that's what it would be. Mm-hmm. And like I just, I love the, I love the whole, everything about it. Like the fact that it starts with someone coming to you often because they want to propose. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of working with them on what they want and there's often a lot of symbolism in there and then 
you know, once they've proposed, then they're coming back getting wedding bands with the partner and then it becomes this different dialogue and then then you kind of just know that these pieces are going to be passed down for generations mm-hmm. potentially and, yeah, there's just so much meaning behind it. But there's a, I also do, you know, rings for other occasions as well. Like I do do a lot of morning rings mm-hmm. for people and I did one recently that was actually the most like emotive piece I've ever done personally she her father died in a car accident and she brought some of the glass chips from the windscreen that she wanted to get set into a ring and like you know there'd been an email dialogue between my sales assistant and her and you know so I knew this was coming and I kind of like yeah I love the idea I would definitely do that when I actually got the bag of the glass it was the most like I've been sent human, you know, hair from deceased people and Mm -hmm. teeth and all sorts of things. And this, the most visceral response I've ever had was to this glass. Like it was just so powerful. And so, yeah, they were set like diamonds into a ring. These little kind of like like uncut diamonds. And it's one of the most beautiful things I think I've ever made. And it's, you know, it's like the opposite of a precious gem. Like it's just windscreen glass, but then it's got this whole other level of preciousness about it and you know it's almost you can almost feel the impact Mm -hmm. in the glass that is uh, the it's so powerful that I sitting with that feeling and to to think of going through that motion of taking something that took probably her first love and turning it into something powerful for her to make and to have you to make the beauty out of that situation for her yeah yeah definitely it was yeah it still kind of gives me goosebumps thinking about it now because it was yeah such an incredible and I was just so grateful for her for coming to me with you know it was like such an honor to be able to be trusted with something something like that yeah I I wanted to know just a little bit about your process of because you love the symbolism what is a little bit of your process when you're asking somebody about the ring they're having made because I imagine it's different than a regular jeweler right yeah, well, I, like, again, my sales assistant does most of that stuff and then I will come in with ideas. But normally the person has a pretty set idea on if they are wanting something thematic, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of already know what direction they want to go. And, like, I did a ring for a guy who lived in somewhere in California, I think, and he was from – one of them was from California and the other one was from Australia. And I think he, yeah, there was, we ended up doing like an eagle's wing on the side because my assistant found that the, like he really, some people want very literal mm-hmm. symbolism mm-hmm. and I have to find a way for it to work in my work where it's not cliche and tacky because mm-hmm. I don't want to, I'm just not going to just randomly, like the other day I had someone emailing asking if I could, do an elephant ring or engrave an elephant on the side and I was just like no <laughs> sorry like, that's it's not just, it's just not the sort of things I work with mm-hmm. um but yeah I think the flag of wherever she was from had an eagle on it so mm-hmm. um yeah so I did like a, an eagle's wing down the side and then it had that's right so she because she was Australian, so we did an Argyle diamond, which is from oh, yeah. the Australian diamond mine, to symbolise that. And um, 
yeah, I think there was even some pink argyle pink diamonds in there, which wow. are very rare. The mines actually just shut down. So, you know, you might get that level of something mm-hmm. and like the windscreen glass and then you'll get other people who just, you know, want, they just like the look of something and they, mm-hmm. they've they seen something on the website and maybe they want it in rose gold with pink stones. Someone else wants it in black mm-hmm. plated metal with black diamonds. And, yeah, it's a very... Um, varied thing it's uh, that's like my my holy grail like top picks would be a piece of jewelry made by you and a piece of taxidermy like if I ever ended up with those things I would Uh. retire I would just literally (laughs) never talk to anybody again you would tell everyone literally wouldn't shut up about it I would literally I would have like a QR code where I'd just pull up your website and be like here just go ahead and scroll she she does kind of do that anyway just to be honest it's my thing it's my thing I always like I've always been hyper interested in things since this whole show, like wanting to know why people are the way they are. That's why the show is. Yeah. And yeah, those are my, those are my, I'm getting ready to celebrate my 10th wedding anniversary in the coming week. And it's, I've been spinning the idea. I'm like, how many anniversaries do I need to have to convince my husband of this? (laughs) I don't think it's many more. Well, that's, that's the thing. Like now people just make up what the anniversaries are. You know, like Diamond used to be, I think, like 50, 50 years or something mm-hmm. and then it got brought down to like 20 something because pe- most people weren't making 50 years right <laughs> yeah and, mm-hmm. and people were wanting people were wanting the diamonds sooner than that so right I should do like a 12 years and we became parents like there's this is my anniversary yeah. gift for that because yeah. we made it through yeah. becoming parents I have one more question before we get to <laughs> two actually because I want to know about Edith the ghost yeah have you had an experience with her yet or are you still waiting in no, the wings? Unfortunately, she's in a different part of the building to me and I don't spend, I mainly work from home, especially now with COVID. So mm-hmm. I don't spend that much time there and I'm never there at nighttime, but it's in a beautiful, my showroom is in a beautiful Victorian terrace and um, it's a, you know, it's got a heritage overlay and everything. And so Edith was murdered by her partner in Victorian times she was she was I think divorced and so wow and then she had a a lover and she had two kids from her marriage and she ran like a the bit that used to be like a was it a button industry no 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 it was a like a hostel or something so it was like accommodation Uh that she ran and it got it got put through as a suicide but it was that whole thing of like, you know, mm. she was a hysterical woman. She was of course, divorced. Mm. And basically, the you know, I think some of the people from the building ended up investigating it and even getting paranormal investigators out because a lot of people have experienced her. Um, but she shot herself, apparently, you know, allegedly with, she was right-handed. She shot herself with her left hand and she missed the first time and shot her chin off and then was successful the second time but you would think that if you had shot your chin off you yeah. might be having a bit of trouble to do the second shot especially yeah. with your left hand yeah. um, and you would also probably be like oh fuck why did I do that <laughs> like you would yeah. have like yeah. a small amount of yeah and you know this is all pre-forensics like now they would have just straight away been mm-hmm. able to work it out but yeah I feel like she and the part of the building that she was actually murdered in has been demolished um but i think they still do see her and mm-hmm. i think her body was brought into the front of the building and yeah wow 
I love that. God rest your soul, Edith. Edie. I love you. The the second question I have, and you don't have to elaborate, I read in an article today that you donated your body to a museum in Germany. Is that correct? Yeah, so I, I'm a donor for the Institute for Plastination in Germany. So it's that guy, Gunter von Hagens, who used to do the live dissections and stuff. Mm-hmm. He's pretty wacky. Um, but I, I think I found out about it because there was a thing on the news like 20 years ago about how he was in trouble for using bodies that were not necessarily ethically sourced I think prisoners and stuff like that and I was like I was like he needs he needs donors (laughs) Uh, I also just feel like I don't actually care what happens to my body when I die but I feel like mm. it's only fair that if I if I'm comfortable doing this to Mm. animals that I should be comfortable to have the same thing done to me my you should just have that as an auto response to your haters to be like actually I'm also going to be a piece of taxidermy so (laughs) Get out of here. They just, they don't, it doesn't matter what you say. <laughs> they just have to tell you how they feel. Yeah, there's, there is a, like, you know, most of the vegan community are beautiful people that are doing it for compassionate reasons, mm-hmm. but there is a subset of angry people who are doing it because they're angry and they want to be angry at as mm-hmm. many people as possible. And there's, you know, it's meant to be about compassion and sending someone death threats is not a compassionate like yeah. humans are animals too, and we need to be compassionate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All living things, not just the cute, fluffy ones. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Cause it's, uh, it, it can be pretty aggressive, which I think is the common, uh, misnomer that people have for people that are vegan is they just go, oh, God, now this person's going to punch me right in the face. Yeah. <laughs> for something. Um, yeah. Oh, thanks for answering those questions. Those were kind of my like two things that I was like, I got to figure out if like somebody just needed to add some words to their article or if that's really true. Um, before we get to today's estate sale walkthrough, Julia, where can our listeners find your work? Um, my jewelry is on my website, juliadeville.com. Um, my art site is being rebuilt, but I've got Instagram. Mm-hmm. It's just at Julia Deville for the more art stuff and at Julia Deville Bridal for the mm. jewelry stuff. And yeah, there's, I'll, I'll send you a link to that, that will, yeah. exhibition walkthrough oh, as well. I'm excited. I'm so excited. And also you could quite literally just Google her and Google just auto-completes who you're looking for. Yeah. So. yeah. You're, there there you're was a, big a drag deal. queen actually called Julia DeVille and I have bumped her off. Yeah, <laughs> Google, sorry. But... <laughs> Like, sorry, Julia. Um, yeah, I we of course will have everything listed for you in uh, probably just a great amount of ways that I will find everything that I want to show of yours because I just it, I just love your work so much. I cannot wait to share this with our listeners so that they can also appreciate the art that you make in both jewelry and taxidermy, literally. So those will be those will be on our website as well as linked on our Instagram at the Mothball Prophecies Original and the MothballProphecies.com. And today we're gonna get into my favorite part of the show. Jill is usually here and she does not like this part of the show. I'm not gonna complain in her place. I like this part. <laughs> so the estate sale walkthrough is a completely manufactured, made up walkthrough. The sale doesn't exist, but the items are very real. And I always find the biggest challenge and also thrill in writing this for people that specialize in a certain thing or mm-hmm. have had access to large collections. Um, so this was very fun to write. So the only rules are there will be two items, two to three items listed in each section. And we will each mm-hmm. pick one. And you can only pick one. It is your responsibility to find your own loopholes. I can't help you steal the other stuff from the sale. So... And these are based around items that I've either seen 
rolling around in your internet livelihood or the things you included in that questionnaire for me. Okay. I'm very excited. So today we are in your neck of the woods, picking from a museum curator's estate. They've come across some wonderful treasures in their time, and they have notable pieces. The first items we come to are laid out in a glass case and labeled with their price and their description. First, we have Queen Victoria's mourning jewelry commemorating her daughter Alice, specifically the enamel cross with the um, agate and pearls, and it says Alice written across it. Or we have Queen Victoria's mesh evening clutch that is shaped like a pig with diamond toes and ruby eyes. <laughs> Dude, I want the pig. You want the pig? You're going... I want that pig. Yeah, I'm pretty into the pig. Mm -hmm. Is that And that's a real thing? It's a real thing. And these both of these pieces were released from the Monarchy's collection and sold through Sotheby's. So they are out in the private sector for What's collecting. What's the price? What's the price on the pig clutch? I could, it is, I'm going to have to post a picture of it because it I'm is. I'm looking it up right now. Absolutely incredible. And it looks like something you would have created, quite honestly. It wow. is that fine chain mail mesh, mesh yeah. with the gold pig head and it's a side profile of the pig and the ruby eyes. And it's got also like a diamond smile. This thing is amazing. It's amazing. I love Queen Victoria. I just think she's the coolest. Is this what you meant? Yes. But when we when we finish this, Julia, I'll pull it up so I can show you on it's, the yeah, Zoom. It's so, good. it's so good. It's so good. So yeah, I also, um, we interviewed um, Hayden Peters on the show because of my love for the Victorian era. And I have yeah. like, but right here behind me is a braid of hair from one of my dear friends. And upstairs I have oh, more wow. hair pieces. So I fully align with the the sentiment and memento mori is a huge thing to me too. So whenever I find out somebody else is into it, I'm like, let's talk about this. Um, what are you picking? I, I, I am going to specifically, I do love the pig, but I also love this brooch that was specifically made for Alice when <clears throat> she died at 35. Does it have hair in it? This one doesn't. She had a couple of pieces made for Alice and they were gifted to her by Albert and different things like right. that. Right. But this one specifically, it's all black with these beautiful little stones on the outside and then inlaid Alice. It's just a great classic, like, and the interesting thing too is as much symbolism as she was noted for having, mm -hmm. it's very simple. It was a very simple yeah. piece given to her. Good. Cause I would fight you for that pig. I, we'll have to have shared custody. We'll split it between the three. Of I, us. W I will win. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now we have our treasures. Next, we visit the library that is filled with history and, of course, books. But we are specifically eyeballing the antique display pieces. So we are going to be choosing from a desktop. It's an antique miniature French enamel brevete vitrine display. That is. Depicting. So vitrine is like glass on the outside. It's usually hand painted. Um, and Do this you know what that is, Julia? Of, yeah, of course. Sounds good. I'm already, <laughs> okay. I'm already, or there is, um, and this can be used for a display case and not necessarily its original intent, um, an antique Victorian black cast iron plant terrarium with the stand. And it specifically has like a lot of the gothic texture on the top, the spires and the different ornate detail. Which do you choose, Julia? God, that's a hard one. I quite like the idea of the terrarium. It's beautiful. I would. 
<laughs> I um, when I was writing this, I was set on the vitrine at first, right? And then I saw this terrarium and went, yeah, nope, it's going to be the terrarium for me because it is, it sits on these beautiful little wispy cast iron legs and it's just that full square glass facade and it's just. Terrarium is also one of my favorite words. Oh, I'm so glad you have a favorite word. <laughs> that makes that. me so happy. What about you, Spellcheck? What are um, you picking? I don't know what a vitrine is, so I'm going to go with that cast iron. But also, how can cast iron be wispy? It was so finely poured. Like, it really does... When you first look at it, it doesn't look... I'll show you that, too. It does not look like cast iron. And the uh, one I saw specifically had been restored. So the glass wasn't the leaded glass originally, which how epic would that be with the original leaded glass inside yeah, of it amazing. i want something heavy enough that i can hit an intruder with it so cast iron i uh this is large so you would have to maybe just <laughs> shove them is into it bigger it. than me yes it's oh. quite large <laughs> okay okay the last item of business involves a little bit of time travel so oh, before yes. we climb into marty's delorean we need to know julia do you go back to the Victorian era to watch any jeweler of your choice create their pieces or to the 18th century Japan to watch the making of Netsuke's? What, where would you go? No, I think I would have to go to the Victorian jewelers. Oh, I thought I had you on that one. What, what, <laughs> it, what it, oh man, I feel so unprepared. What is a Netsuke? Netsuke is, it was ideally used before buttons, right? It was a little tiny piece you would wear either as a toggle or a decorative piece, and they were primarily carved out of ivory. Is that correct, Julia? Yeah, I've got a couple of wooden ones and one ivory one. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't even know if I put that on the questionnaire, but Rudy makes them, my taxidermy teacher. He is like he's highly collected in Japan for his oh, I did not his know that. works. And I, I bought one off him maybe 10 years ago. Um, they're amazing. Like my one's actually got a little pig in it as well. Like his, his ones are these amazing worlds. So as you turn it around, it's like there's a pig and then it turns into like a leg and then there's like a little funny creature and it's just like, he just carves with the knots of the wood. Wow. So, and there's like little mother of pearl inlays and it's so detailed. And every time I look at it, I find something new wow. in there. And, you know, there's like, bits of bodies and all sorts of things it's, mm -hmm. yeah so his he had like a whole tray of them wow yeah how big are they normally to have that much detail um, like an inch or two yeah they're teeny a mm -hmm. tiny yeah and they're done by like, hand well I we'll guess cover all it all, yeah all the, hand carved mm -hmm. yeah we'll cover it in the but, curio corner the, oh the, duh. yeah but it was well they started originally in ivory and different like stones and things like that and then as it moved you know centuries forward they started to inlay more items into it like ivory yeah. or a pearl and different things like that yeah the ones dad's given me are all just like one thing like i've got a little apple that's got a little mouse crawling up the side oh, and cute. i've got a little bat which is ivory <gasps> and that's like the that. wings kind of fold mm. over and what's the other one Actually, maybe Rudy's one is my third. Yeah. They're incredible. I hadn't heard of them until I got your questionnaire because you had it in there. And I was like, what is this? And I looked it up and I was like, oh, damn So it. now you're an expert. Now I have something else I need to look for. Or to even, <laughs> like, if you see something out and about, right, and you can identify what that is. What it is, mm -hmm. yeah. Because they're very odd looking, like. Yeah. Uh, wow. They're okay. incredible. I have one last question, then we'll let you go because you've given us an, an incredible amount of time. What 
is your favorite jewelry from the Victorian era? What is something when you see it, it really is, it says Julia to you? I love the hair work. Um, like I've seen mm-hmm. some, I have a piece that's quite amazing that is like hollow beads, which is woven from hair. And then it's got a crucifix, a hollow <gasps> crucifix mm-hmm. on the end. But I've seen more elaborate pieces that are like acorns that are like hollow acorns. Yeah. With just like this thin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, they're amazing. I did at one point, I've got a book on hair work and I did start. Is it the Mark Campbell to learn one? How to, I'm not sure. It's purple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a pattern book also. Cause I'm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it just, yeah. And, I got as far as doing the I can a black and white checkerboard mm-hmm. of hair, but that took so long on its own. So yeah, the getting to the hollow forms, I think it's kind of a lifetime practice. Mm-hmm. And oh. I've got enough other enough other things I need to do. Yeah, we had somebody on the show that we spoke to that makes modern day uh, morning jewelry, oh, wow. and she is incredible. Her name's Gina Icavelli. And she does all of that, the table work and the palette work. and Yeah, it's oh, in- incredible. The only piece I own, because I'm pretty particular about my collection when it comes to hair pieces, because I'm a hairdresser by trade. And um, yeah, so hair does not gross me out at all. And seeing yeah. hair pieces is incredible. But I have a piece, it's a 52-inch chain. And the chain is around the size, if you were to wrap it around the inside ink cartridge of a ballpoint pen. And it's a three-strand uh-huh. braid, and you cannot see where it begins or ends. And it's a it links of that. Yeah, it's links of hair chain. It is incredible. And wow. it looks like bronze. When I first got it, I was like, I've been had. This is just cheap yeah. chain. Yeah. I thought she was lying yeah. when she first showed it to me yeah. because it did not look like hair work. Yeah. Same. It's incredible. So I, I fully, yeah, I would go back to the Victorian England and seriously just sit like a cat in a shop and watch somebody work. Yeah. I think yeah. I'd, I'd go to Victorian era for sure, but I wouldn't watch the jewelry. I'd go find Charles Dickens probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Charles, what's going on? Hey, I dude. miss you. You could find him in a shop probably at some um, point. He was a real dick, so <laughs> I just want to go punch him in the balls. <laughs> well, Juliet, thank you so much for sitting down with us today and sharing about your work. It was really a treat. I awesome. appreciate no, it. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thank We're you. We're both still trying to control ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> we'll probably lose it after we get off the call here. Yeah. <laughs> to hear even more about the things we covered today in Julia's episode, stick around for this week's Curio Corner. I have to start by saying thank you for being such a wonderful counterpart in that interview. Oh, hey, thanks. Jill will be most proud of you. Oh, well, I definitely can't replace her, but I'm I'm happy to stand in. I really, it was it was quite nice to have you here by my side for that interview and to have like a little bit of a different perspective through it all also. It was nice. Yeah, I, I like that I got to be, I felt like I was a lot more active than I anticipated. You did great. Thank you. Yeah, it's a little nerve wracking to, to be a host. Well, and it's an interesting um, perspective to be into it. Like when we finished, I said, it's interesting to have a conversation over Zoom because the normal cadences of conversation really aren't. Oh, yeah. It's completely different. Mm-hmm. And you don't really notice that until you're having a longer conversation with someone. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more pausing. There's a lot more consideration behind what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, while I do, I love both forms of interviews that we get to do on the show. And I don't think generally speaking, I would ever have really a personal opportunity to interview Julia. Oh, yeah. No, she's like way out of our league. Yeah. 
I mean, well, and I'm not. I don't plan <laughs> on being in Australia anytime soon. Yeah, I would be cool. Yes, for sure. Yeah, but it's also someday. Yeah, it's just not one of those things you can jump on a plane and mm-hmm. go to Australia whenever you want. And it was like, and I say it uh, profusely in the interview, it was really great to sit down with somebody that I've admired their work for so long and to see, you know, kind of like looking like a watchmaker looking at a watch. Yeah, she was not at all what I was expecting. She was so normal, mm-hmm. but like our kind of normal. Yeah. Very yeah. just like a cool lady mm-hmm. and really, really nice. And I did not realize I was so moved by her work because mm-hmm. I actually got like kind of choked up a little bit looking at some of her pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that, that uh, first drew me to uh, her work, you know, at the time of discovering her, I mean, the internet was really still not where it is today. You know, yeah. You I mean, 2006, 2007. I'm still in high school at that point and mm-hmm. coming across things, I think on like MySpace and Tumblr and right. seeing things like that. And I remember the first time I saw one of her pieces, I was incredibly moved by, and she has this way, and I wanted to say it to her during the interview, of making the eyes of the pieces so incredibly lifelike. Yeah, the it doesn't look like the normal kind of taxidermy, mm-hmm. at least that I'm used to, mm-hmm. because I do come from a family of hunters. We don't have a ton of taxidermy animals, mm-hmm. but I mean, I've seen plenty of it, and my dad... So he goes um, deer hunting every year in November with his brother, and uh, we butcher the deers as mm-hmm. the deer as a family, and we eat the whole thing, and then he puts the head out to dry in the sun, and then keeps the skulls. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's like something I've always seen because he's done this for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. It her taxidermy is nothing like that. No, I had a client for a while that her um, husband is a taxidermist just like on the side mm-hmm. and I would literally just get so annoying with questions. I would be like, so what does, and like she'd just be like, I don't know anything about it. And I was like, rats. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, like when we had Brandy on the show and kind of learning how people are like self-taught or a mentor, mm-hmm. like it's still something that I want to cross off of my bucket list. Yeah. To learn when we went to the expo um, in Salt Lake, there was a class being taught that day of like, making your own jackalope taxidermy i love that but it went the entire day and that just really wasn't going to couldn't work out it wasn't going to work but eventually i'm sure there will be and i now own i didn't realize how many pieces of taxidermy i actually own Mm -hmm. until today when i was like or the other day um, when i had antique study group here yeah um and there was uh i was like oh i do own quite a bit of taxidermy for my house yeah and it's all little pieces that I like and the kind of anthropomorphic macabre, some it's, of them. Yeah, it's definitely not the um, hunter-centric. Mm-hmm. The only one I have that is like traditional Idaho is the pheasant that I found at the DI, which is hilarious to me. It really is um, probably the most Idaho Falls thing that could have mm-hmm. happened. And I'm going to re-put him on something else because I don't like the rattan fucking thing that he's on. Yeah, he needs to be, um, you know. Yeah. He needs some snazz. Yeah, some pizzazz. Some vajazzling. Yes. Or something. Yes. Pajazzling, because P- it's a festive. <laughs> <laughs> he needs rhinestones. He does. You need to send him to Mexicitch and oh, have her bedazzle. Oh, God. Him. You hear that, Elrod? <laughs> I need you to do something with this. Well, I also want to put like a tiny action figure on the back, like a He Man. Oh, please do. Do that whole thing. Please. Add some reins. I really do want a Julia de Villet. Laser eyes. Yeah, laser eyes. Pew. That's the noise it would make. Um, we didn't particularly cover, I think, anything in this episode that we felt necessary to like 
delve into deeper. Yeah, Julia nothing, did a great job. Crazy. Really expanding on the things that she does. Well, she obviously knows her shit. No doubt, right? Well, it was really interesting to find out the, the uh, rise of taxidermy in that part of the world. Yeah, I... I always assumed that it was like a very specifically American thing. I mean, it makes sense. Because it kind of is. But mm-hmm. the fact that it's becoming so popular worldwide, mm-hmm. I I really like that. Not It's not just our version of taxidermy. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of more environmentally friendly, kind of more conscious version mm-hmm. of taxidermy. Yeah. And I um, I try my best to support those people that are making ethically sourced yeah um taxidermy like to know where my things are coming from and that they were sourced in a respectful way as much as is possible because sometimes there's just no way to know right correct um we did talk about something and this was in the estate sale walkthrough yeah i asked about something that julia knew about but it is something that i didn't i didn't know about until earlier that day Mm -hmm. and i uh we asked her about netsuke or netsuki it can go kind of either way yeah i've never heard of this and it was, I misspoke just slightly about it. It is used as a toggle and a button, but it was specifically used to hold something because um, during the time that Netsuke's were made, this comes from japanobjects.com and it kind of breaks down the uh, different um, aspects of these pieces. And it was made in 18th and 19th century Japan and Edo Japan specifically. It was used for... Use with wearing of kimonos and kusode. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. And which is a looser, simpler form of a kimono. And it is secured about the waist by obi sashes. sashes. Um, kimono and kusode. However, they don't have any pockets. So regardless of how fine and beautiful the kimono was, it still needed to be practical. And for men in particular. So it became necessary to have something that tied to one's obi's belt. Oh, so it's... It's kind of like a hanging pocket. Yeah. So it would be used mm-hmm, as a vessel uh, for money and personal effects. And it was used to like suspend like a hand carved wooden box that would have like their money yeah. or important things that they needed to carry around while they were wearing a kimono or the other option. Um, and they would hang by a cord and they were anchored in place by the netsuke. So kind of like, a, you know, a hats where you like move that bead up and down so it stays on yeah. your chin. That was how they would do it. And it's so Natsuke, they're small palm sized ornaments or smaller, and they're carved from boxwood or ivory. Um, and they often have a hole passing through them from top to bottom where the cord went through. When they first originated, they were simple objects used to hold that in row in place. And then they became, of course, a piece of art and an adornment that you would add with your outfit. Common themes are zodiac animals, creatures of Japanese folklore, monks, no actors, masks, and of course, many more. Um, and there was so much skill that went into it. And so they're made by sculpting and carving. So it starts with the natural materials, the ivory or the boxwood, and they create the desired shape using various knives and chisels. Now, mind you, these are small. They're tiny. And they were often themed around folklore, which is why you can kind of roll it over and you kind of see this whole story or, um, oh my gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? The mythology around the piece yeah. and what it was. Um, and then they had, it was, so the process could take up to several weeks to make one. Well, yeah, if it's made out of ivory. Right. And especially if it had like a human visage, right? Mm-hmm. It was, of course, done by hand by a master carver. And once completed, it would usually be coated in a lacquer. The wood specifically. 
um, so that it would be preserved and could be worn daily for many years. So it's functional art mm-hmm. is really what it is. Yeah, and and this are, is they're beautiful. They're gorgeous. And this is from the 17th to the 19th century. Excuse me. Um, so there are different symbolisms that go into them, whether it's uh, for love or something that the person does for a living. Um, and then it goes through to describe the different types of um, artwork that was put onto them and how it was spun around. And then as it progressed, we talked about this at the end in the curio corner, how are in the uh, <laughs> estate sale walkthrough, how they started to inlay more fine jewels and used like different bits. So like there's a no mask and it has a uh, pearl inlaid and ivory inlaid onto it. They just got more complex as they started to continue. And then it was interesting to find out that her mentor um, actually was making them. Yeah. That's it. What a, what a thing to put on your resume. Mm-hmm. Like I'm mm-hmm. a master taxidermist, but also I make these cool things. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. It also. was, um, oh, of course there's a, a two people copulating. <laughs> net suitcase yeah i love this they're beautiful please um while you're listening just talk about this please look them up and have a scroll yeah and if um you know anything more about them you know let us know please yeah because they are it's like everything with the show once you learn about one more new thing you're like all right well Mm -hmm. add it to my list yeah and if you've got any in your collection Mm -hmm. pictures yeah please send us some pictures and we uh, we were talking about one of Julia's exhibits, one yes. of um, she did in Australia, and it was the one we were talking about where it was like a fully immersive experience. Yeah, I my whole brain was on fire thinking about what that would feel like, mm-hmm. being able to see the pieces, but also experience certain um, sounds and mm-hmm. specifically smells that yeah. go along with it. I love that idea. That plays right into my brain box. Yeah. Um, and she was, I can't remember which part she was saying one of the areas in the exhibit. She wanted the smell of ozone to be like part of the exhibit, which sounds amazing because it's such a strong, unique smell. And it uh, it really smell triggers so many things in your mm-hmm. brain. Um, but, Incredibly evocative. But ozone's not good to breathe in. So um, I'm on the epa.gov here the um, united states environmental protection agency wondering what exactly is ozone so um it's actually three oxygen atoms chunked together so it's o3 wow so my first thought is what's wrong with that it's just more oxygen but um it's actually not great for you to inhale um it's one of those things that if you're so I'm I'm over here it's talking about um what are ozone's acute physiological symptoms and effects um so one of the most prominent effects you're going to get from short term exposure which they they state as up to 8 hours and I feel like that's not short term but that's pretty that's a full day of work yeah that's uh that's not healthy no but I mean it's going to cause cough throat irritation pain burning and discomfort in the chest while taking a deep breath. Wow. Chest tightness, wheezing, shortness of breath. I mean, this is all like really severe lung related problems. Basically, it's going to stop your lungs from functioning. It says causes lung function uh, decrements such as reductions in force. Uh, That's a word I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind with that sentence. Um, 
basically it causes your lungs to slowly stop functioning properly. So, um, good job, Julia, for not putting the ozone into I'm your. Smart. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the museum was like, ah, uh, yeah. That's why I was like, just give everybody like a mask to wear. But then you can't smell it. <laughs> but that's the point because, uh, yeah. yeah. So cool idea. Not not great in execution, probably. Mm-mm. So okay. And the the thing that she mentioned specifically about this exhibit, which we will have the link for um, in the on the website. Yeah, she she has it all available as like a virtual walkthrough mm-hmm. like a 3d walkthrough because we can't all go to australia yeah which was incredible an incredible idea and one of the things that she talks about doing um which was a new interest for her were creating holograms mm-hmm. uh, because of her interest in physics and different things like that and she um will link the interview where she speaks about it specifically for you guys to watch also on youtube yeah. it's a really beautiful um depiction of julia even more so and what she does for work and how uh, she operates. It's really incredible. Um, so this comes from Wikipedia, just a straightforward example of what a holograph is. So holography, holography, holography. Yeah. Uh, it's a technique that enables a wave front to be recorded and reconstructed later. Um, it's a method of generating three-dimensional images, and it has a wide use of applications. A hologram is made by superimposing a second wavefront, normally called the reference beam, um, on the wavefront of interest. So it's made with lasers and glass and uses photography to get the image. It's Star Wars. Yes. Thereby generating an interference pattern, which is recorded onto a physical medium, like glass. Um, when only the second wavefront illuminates the interface, the interference pattern it is diffracted to recreate the original wavefront so that's where that image comes into play right holograms can also be computer generated which is where you see them as like leia coming out of r2 and right yes um in halo with katana like all of those things is it katana no uh cortana cortana thank you um and so the resulting digital image is then printed onto a suitable mask or film and illuminated by a light source so julia got into those with this this new interest in physics and different things like that and wanted to have another experience of where it's images of her taxidermy Mm -hmm. experienced in that three-dimensional hologram and she uses these beautiful ornate antique frames and which i love that she put the antique frame around the Mm -hmm. like hyper scientific Mm -hmm. hologram that's that's a great it's it's it kind of almost feels like a joke like an inside joke Mm -hmm. yeah i'm excited to we're gonna i'm gonna watch it um and i'll send you the link for it so you can see it too yes please because it's i'm excited to have that immersive experience and to see what a generous thing to uh, just like put that out for everybody right and the amount of work that had to have gone into that yeah yeah that was um an absolute treat to have her on the show please go and look um at all of the links we have listed at the mothballprophecies.com as well as on our instagram at the mothballprophecies original be sure to go and follow julia's work and do a deep google dive please because um, she's an exceptional, exceptional person and she's exceptionally talented. And I was. She is a, a, an artist in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. 100%. Right now, we would like to thank some of our favorite people, our patrons. Without them, a lot of the show would not be possible and traveling would also not be possible. So our endless gratitude to all of you. We've actually started to put together really great October bags. So if you're listening to this and you have not joined the Patreon, 
join to get the exceptional holiday bags that are going to be coming out over the next couple of months. Right now, we would like to thank Katrina and Erica in Arizona. Gray in Colorado. Emily and Crystal in Nevada. Ruth in British Columbia. Ruby and Autumn in Ohio. Aaron in Wisconsin. RJ in Florida. Gina in South Carolina. Julia in Sweden. Jasmine in Kentucky. Kyla in Indiana. Javier, Shanna, Mandy, and Riley in California. Betty, Lisa, Aaron, TC Lionel, Melissa, Christina, Becky, and Ashley in Idaho. A gigantic thank you to our wonderful team. Gray, you make us sound great every week, and we truly appreciate it. And of course, to our dear Spellcheck. Me. Thank you, really, for doing <laughs> all you do behind the scenes for us and making us actually look like we know how to punctuate me specifically. I have imposter syndrome. I know, but you do a great job. Thanks. We really appreciate you. <laughs> As always, I hope you find some good shit. And uh, remember to do your research. Yes. yes. Bye. Bye.